You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Zephaniah. Everybody say Zephaniah. Zephaniah. I just want to make sure we know he's a minor prophet. I don't know why. I mean, he's really not a minor prophet. He was a pretty major guy. Um, but for some reason, you know, we like to have these major prophets and minor prophets because, you know, we can't go without our classifications. Uh, so if you have your Uversion app, if you'll go there, that would be great. If you do not have your app, you're going to need your Bibles and Zephaniah. And I want to give you some backdrop because we need to know the story. If we're going to really receive the gift of this Advent joy, we want us to know the story. Sometimes the story has a little bit of weight to it. So until Zephaniah, until Zephaniah, there hasn't been a prophetic word to Judah since the prophets of Isaiah and Micah, some 50, 60 years from this time. Zephaniah is not your typical prophet. Like the prophets before, he is a poet, but he's more than that. Like the prophets before, he is a social critic, but he's more than that. Like the prophets before, he is a statesman and a patriot, but he's more than that. He is a descendant of King Hezekiah, one of Judah's better kings, if you know your Bible history. Royal blood flows through Zephaniah's veins. He is well acquainted, therefore, with the ins and outs of politics, matters of the state, or as we would say, the law of Moses. And he has access to the royal courts. Zephaniah knows how Judah has lost her way. Once again, in this southern kingdom's history, Judah has fallen away from Yahweh with their pride. King Josiah now sits on the throne. Now his reign began at the age of eight years old after his father was assassinated. Can you imagine having a king eight years old? My son is 12. If he were king, it would be a law of the land that all of us spend four hours a day playing Xbox. 2K, 21, maybe some Fortnite in between. That would be a weird world, right? Like that, that just an eight-year-old king, right? But that's the case. And both King Josiah's father and grandfather were wicked kings, and Judah was in a mess. But the nation is regaining its power and wealth. It's starting to build itself back up. And in this effort to become a strong presence in the world, Zephaniah tells Judah that their society is in a mess. Judah's society has given themselves over to all sorts of injustices, namely creating systems that oppress the poor and the widow. You should read it. It's in the text. Zephaniah also tells them that it is wrong how they have tolerated child sacrifices and mixed their worship of God with the worship of false gods. And they've even persecuted every prophet that came to warn them, prophets like Micah and Isaiah. Because like Judah and like most countries, including our own, we only like our prophets when they're dead. Pride has settled deep into the soil of Judah. If you read chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll find that self-absorption has led to a false sense of self-sufficiency, and that has resulted in self-indulgence. In other words, beloved, Judah's people are doing whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, whenever they want to do it, regardless of the impact and consequences it has on their society. 
Judah has fallen into a faithless pride trying to build a society without God as king. And they claim, they claim to be one nation under God, but in the words of a prophet, they persecuted Isaiah. They honor God with their mouths, but their hearts are far from God. See, worship is turned away from a life of service to lip service. And no one seeks justice or walks humbly with God. Judah's sins and rebellion point to one reality. They no longer trust God as their king. And as a consequence, they no longer truly worship the Lord, even though they show up for it. They've fallen into pride, a faithless pride. And Zephaniah has witnessed this fallout of Josiah's father and grandfather's reign and even walks the streets denouncing Judah as, I quote, a rebellious and polluted city. You feeling the joy yet? It'll get there. See, because the word on the street is that Josiah has a different set of morals and values than his father and grandfather. The word on the street is that he's grown up to be a pretty good king. And he pursues the heart of God. And this is good news. This is good news because the world surrounding Judah is becoming unstable. Don't miss this. The Assyrian Empire, which has dominated the world for hundreds of years, is teetering on disaster. Their rulers have become tired and fickle and unpredictable. And so the question for God's people is, will Josiah position Judah and will Josiah become a world leader? And so Zephaniah, with his royal blood running through his veins, his knowledge of politics, enters into the scene. But I need you to know something about Zephaniah, and it's true about all prophets. Zephaniah is an policy. See, prophets don't do policy. They do poetry. And he has a word from the Lord. It's a prophetic vision. It's one of judgment against Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. This, quote, day of the Lord is coming and will sweep away everything. And the question for Judah will be, can they really construct a world that works when Yahweh isn't their king? That's their question. So Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. This is kind of, it's kind of, uh, kind of sad, what we're about to read, but it's the context, it's the story. Here's the word of the Lord from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I will wipe out everything from the earth, says the Lord. I will destroy humanity and the beasts. I will destroy the birds and the sky and the fish in the air. I'll make the wicked into a heap of ruins. I'll eliminate humanity from the earth, says the Lord. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will eliminate what's left of Baal from this place and the names of the priests of foreign gods those bowing down to the forces of heaven on the rooftops, those swearing by the Lord along with those swearing by milk and with false God, those turning away from the Lord, those who don't seek the Lord and don't pursue the Lord. Verse 7, hush before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has established a sacrifice. He's made holy those He has summoned. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. The day is a day of wrath. Think Zephaniah was a popular guy? The Lord's holy love for the people 
will not allow the Lord to watch the people He loves continue to destroy themselves. The Lord seeks to transform them into a worshiping and justice-seeking community, one marked by holiness, compassion, and righteousness. And so the Lord is pursuing them. But as always, as always, and stay with this part because it's important because it explains some of the nuances that we may feel about this Lord who announces all this judgment. As always in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the midst of the possibility of judgment, there are new possibilities of repentance and restoration. Listen, beloved, this is important. When Yahweh sends prophets to announce consequences, Yahweh always offers a way out. Nations and societies are not so much victims of God's judgment as we are victims of our own choices of living without God as king. The Hebrew scholars call this the law of actions and consequences. And you see it play out over and again. So here are the words of Zephaniah in chapter 2 and the new possibilities of repentance and restoration. Verse 1. So Zephaniah, after all that, says, Gather yourselves in. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation. He's not letting them off the hook. Before the decree takes effect, you see that? Before it happens, before the day passes like the chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what He commands, parentheses, not what you want to do. Seek justice, that's the text. Sedekah, that's the Hebrew word. Maybe translated righteousness, it means justice. It means social justice. It means justice done on social levels. It's what the word has always meant. Seek justice in society. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed or protected on the day of the Lord's anger. See, Zephaniah has a word for the faithful ones here. Living in the midst of all this. He's calling. Zephaniah is calling for the righteous ones to step up and out of the shadows of injustice and idolatry. He wants to lead them so that they will lead Judah to repentance and restoration. And if they do this, if they do this, if they trust the word of the Lord through Zephaniah and they step up and out of the shadows of injustice and idolatry, if they step out, up and out of this land of doing whatever you want to do because you want to do it, if they're willing to step out of that, something beautiful and glorious will take place that more adequately expresses the heart of God. And it's Zephaniah chapter 3. It'll come to a place where he will be able to say to them, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it'll be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will hold his peace in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. You see that? 
That is the joy of God. See, what we know, because we know our, because we know our biblical story, what we know from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that King Josiah was a wise and godly king after all. He held the line. He boldly and courageously removed the idols from Judah. He ordered that the temple be renovated so that true worship could be restored, which led to a rediscovery of the Scriptures, which led them to recommit to the values and practices commanded through the law of Moses. They were no longer a people practicing injustice, but justice. They were no longer a people filled in a land of broken promises where everybody does just what they want to do. They were actually looking out for one another. And a season of renewal and joy was experienced by Judah all the way until the death of King Josiah in the field of battle. The promise was true. But see, that's not just a whole story. You see this text? It's also an Advent text. Because scholars believe that this has some messianic, what's called messianic tones to it. In other words, it's speaking to the people of God, not only in the present, but many times as often as the case with the prophets, also in the future. This picture that Zephaniah paints is a beautiful picture of God's love for God's people of all time. Listen to the text again. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment and turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is among you and you need no longer fear harm. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is among you, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will hold his peace and his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. You can see it, can't you? Can you see it happening? Can you see it happening in the streets of Judah? Can you see the faithful ones of the Lord throwing a party, shouting in words of joy to one another? Can you see them dancing and laughing over the fact that the God who created the heavens and earth knows them, loves them, and reigns over them in love? And there in the midst of this celebrating people is this God of heaven and earth rejoicing and dancing over them God is like a father holding a homecoming party for the son who was lost but is found. Sound familiar? God is like a shepherd joyously calling out to the neighbors that the sheep that has been lost has been rescued. Sound familiar? God is like a widow who sends out party invitations to friends and neighbors who just to come and celebrate that the precious silver coin she lost has been recovered. Do you get it now? Zephaniah wants us to see, beloved, that this celebration, this street party, is a celebration of joyous love where the Lord and His people dance and sing together. And as we read this text through the lens of Advent, we rediscover the wonder and the strength of Advent joy. And here's what I mean. See, for us, these promises that literally came true for Judah, are also literally coming true for us. But we have to reset our vision. We have to open our eyes. We have to open our minds. We have to choose to see and believe. Everybody say choose. You have to choose it. See, the good news for us is that the king of Judah is lord of the church. God's people of Zion. Look at verse 14. The Lord is present among us. 
by the Holy Spirit as we gather together and around the table. Look at 15 and verse 17. God's judgments have been removed. Look at verse 15. God has held His peace and proven God's love in the outstretched arms and nail-printed hands of our Lord. Look at verse 17. Who is our mighty Savior? Verse 17. And the enemy and all the enemy's schemes have been defeated and cast out, and we no longer have to fear harm. Look at verse 15 again. A life lived in the loving reign of God has become our freedom because He rejoices over us in His love. We've been delivered from the reign of sin and death and into the loving reign of grace because Christ the Lord has come and is coming again. And this is our joy. Our joy in the Lord is our freedom. We're not going to find joy in some version of a better freedom because we're not going to find a better freedom than the freedom that Christ brings us into the presence of the God who dances and rejoices with us. Because we know. Like, like we're trying to see it. We're trying to believe it. We're trying to open our minds and hearts and imaginations to receive it. But that's the problem. We become too smart. We have these expectations of God. And when God doesn't do what we expect God to do, then we lose our joy. And yet every one of us, if we've cast our faith in Jesus Christ, have staked our belief that there's an afterlife that none of us have ever seen, that God has secured for us. We all want to go to heaven, but we're too afraid to live because we're too afraid to die. And we try to find then some kind of joy and satisfaction deep within our bones in some other pursuit. Like lovers in lines, we line up for the goods and services of Babylon and for the hopes and the dreams of what anybody else can offer us. And we fail to dance because we think that we have a better dance partner than the God who knows us best and loves us most. See, here's the thing. I, I don't know why a lot of things happen in the world. I have theological ideas. I have ideas theologically as to why and how tornadoes ravage communities. Theological ideas as to why military tyrants murder. Theological ideas as to why bullets and bombs destroy lives. I have ideas as to why cancer ravages bodies and COVID ravages some and not others. I have theological ideas, but at the end of the day, they're all just ideas. And so what happens for us is we get lost in what we don't know. And we fail to remember what we do know. And so here's what I do know. I do know that the fruit of the Spirit who lives in each one of God's people is still love. I do know that the fruit of the Spirit is still joy. I do know that the fruit of the Spirit is still peace. I do know that the fruit of the Spirit is still kindness and goodness and patience and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I don't know what's going on in the world, but I know what God says should be going on in us. And then when we take what's going on in us out into the world, it reflects itself out into the world. 
And then even though we may feel a little sorrow, we know that it's sorrow. We haven't lost our joy. We're just feeling the weight of a world that is on fire. But the fruit of the Spirit is still love. And the fruit of the Spirit is still kindness. In a society of meanness and selfishness and self-absorption and self-indulgence, the fruit of the Spirit is still self-control. See, God has revealed to us God's heart in this Advent season. God has been revealed in the Advent season because of the Christ child. God yearns, beloved, God yearns to share God's life with us and enjoy God forever. The King of the universe is the King of love and wants us more than we want Him. It is the Lord Jesus' love that purifies and transforms us into a people who can fully trust the reign of God in the world. The Lord is satisfied by God's own love for us and that, bring God's, that brings God joy and God wants nothing more than for us to know that joy. Beloved, let's not allow the events of our world or nation get us confused about the source of our joy and what joy is. We must learn to resist. Everybody say resist. We must learn to resist trying to find satisfaction in the lesser things of lesser kingdoms. And remember the joy of Advent. So this third Sunday of Advent, we are invited to remember that joy is not some fleeting feeling of optimism. It is a state of mind. It is an orientation of the heart. Joy is a satisfied state of mind that takes pleasure and peace in the loving reign of the King who has come and is coming again, the King over our lives, and turns our hearts, this joy, away from fear, and to the one who says, do not fear, because I am with you. Joy is this settled contentment. It's a confidence, it's a hope, but not in ourselves, and not in a nation, not in other things, but in the faithful love of the God who reigns with compassion and grace. It is a settled assurance and sometimes quiet confidence that even in a world prone to anxiety, fear, and violence, everything is going to be all right one day because God's kingdom, of which you and I are citizens, will never falter or fail because Jesus is Lord and keeps God's promises. So joy has to be more than a feeling of fleeting optimism. It has to be something that arises from the ashes of a world prone to anxiety, disappointment, and fear. With the strength to straighten my legs and strengthen my hands so that by faith I can trust in the presence of the God who is with me. This is how joy becomes our strength. And we hold on to the belief that all we need, we hold on, that all we need is actually given to us in Christ. That we are filled with the Spirit of God where the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control is actually possible we are children of the king of kings who tells us 
that when things seem impossible, God can make them possible. And we sing songs about it. And we light candles because of it. Beloved, we must remember our deepest biblical story. The deepest piece of our story is that in the Christ child, God is doing so much more than forgiving us of our sins and making a way for us to be in heaven when we die. In the Christ child, according to the story of Scripture, God has begun, God has begun this great reversal of all things. Everybody say great reversal. There's a great reversal of all things. There's a new ordering of things because God's kingdom has come. It's a great reversal because what we think should work no longer actually works when Jesus is the Lord of it. See, what I mean is, we'll no longer find our lives by gaining, but our Lord tells us we find our lives by giving. The Lord tells us that the first in society's power will no longer remain first because the last and the least will take first place. See, our Lord tells us that no longer can you and I choose who's in and who's out, Because at God's table, all are welcome. This is a new way of being human in society. See, part of the problem is one of the reasons we struggle holding on to the joy of the Lord is because we've grown bored with the great reversal. We have one foot in the way things used to be because they still are, and one foot in the way things will be that's actually becoming. And that just results in a banana split. And that's a painful way to live. Beloved, the joy of the Lord is an all-in thing. We choose to believe. Because we light the candle and we say, we believe Christ has come and is coming again. We take the bread and the cup and we say, Christ has come. And it's coming again. When our joy is deep and our love flows wide by the power of the Spirit working within, among, and between us, that is when we will move from being spectators in a theater enjoying friendly Christmas pageants to becoming participants in this great reversal of all things. It's when our joy will flow out of our lives into the lives of others. And others will see that they're trying to find satisfaction in lesser things. And we know what that's like because we struggle with it too. But when we come together and we come to the table, we remember that there is nothing that can satisfy more than Christ who has come and who is coming again. No more seeking satisfaction of the God of lesser things when we have the God of all things who knows us best and loves us most and wants to sing and rejoice over us. You know what, beloved? We can't do it at home with some podcast and some praise music alone. That is not how the community of faith is designed. It is not how the kingdom of God is built. It requires all of us. I mean, look around. Look at who we are. It requires all of us. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.